My name is Chris DeMuth. I'm a fellow here at the Hudson Institute, and I'm delighted to welcome all of you to Hudson uh, this evening for this uh, book discussion with my colleague Arthur Herman, who will be discussing his uh, latest work, Douglas MacArthur, American Warrior, uh, published just last week by Random House, available for sale in the ante room. Uh, here in the hallways uh, at Hudson, uh, Arthur's colleagues know him as a penetrating analyst of the present, of the fracking revolution and its geopolitical implications of international strategy, U.S. military preparedness, the U.S.-Japan alliance. He sometimes even dips his toe into domestic politics. But Arthur Herman has uh, another life. I wouldn't say it's a second life, it's more of a complementary life, uh, and that is as an analyst of the past. Uh, Arthur is an eminent historian, the author of bestsellers, a Pulitzer Prize finalist, uh, and an historian of amazing uh, breadth. He is an historian of ideas, the idea of decline in Western history, 1997, the cave and the light. Plato versus Aristotle, his last book before this one, 2013. He is a military historian. To rule the waves, how the British Navy shaped the modern world. He is an analyst of unique historical moments and figures. Gandhi and Churchill, the epic rivalry that destroyed an empire and forged our age. Freedom's Forge. A lot of forging going on here. How American business produced victory in World War II. And he is a biographer. Joseph McCarthy, the life and legacy of America's most hated senator. And now, General uh, his great uh, book on General uh, MacArthur. And in one singular volume, how the Scots invented the modern world in 2002. He is all of the above, an historian of religion, philosophy, culture, politics, great men and scoundrels, and how they all came together at a, at a critical inflection point in history in the period of the Scottish Enlightenment. I first encountered Arthur when I had picked up how the Scots invented the modern world uh, was seized by this book in its astounding first chapter, amazed at the author's powers of uh, synthesis, uh, wanted to find out who this fellow was, after all. Uh, but the first thing I did was I turned to Amazon and bought a whole crate of these books uh, for family and friends. I gave them to each one of my children and told them that if they read the book carefully and passed an exam that I would give to them, uh, that I would take them on a family vacation to Scotland. Uh, they passed, and I took them to Scotland. And when I got back, I finally got up my nerve to call the author and introduce myself. Uh, he consented to get together with me, and that began a uh, long and close uh, uh, friendship that continues to this day. Now, I want everybody here to do exactly what I did with How the Scots Invented the Modern World with Douglas MacArthur, American Warrior, and which I will do with this book also, which is to buy not just one, but a whole stack of them. Uh, for those who are here at Hudson afterwards, uh, for those who are uh, watching in uh, online uh, or uh, afterwards, uh, to go to your local or internet uh, bookseller and get a stack of them, uh, because when you read it, you are going to... Pardon me? Don't forget 
Yes, no, no, they're in the ante room uh, for, uh, are you giving them away or are they for sale? They're, they're for sale, good, good. Um, I learned something from the Scots. When you, when you read this book, when you, when you read this book, you are going to uh, want to give uh, uh, copies uh, to family and friends. It, it's a singular contribution to the MacArthur literature. Uh, General MacArthur was a polarizing figure long before that term had been uh, invented and come, in, come into common currency. So most of the biographies of MacArthur are either uh, hagiographies or hatchet jobs. Uh, this book is uh, neither of the two. It is an attempt to take the full measure of the man, and it is based upon uh, a huge trove of new primary materials uh, that have uh, uh, that have uh, come to be, that have uh, come to be uh, found or made publicly available since the last full, fair and balanced uh, biography of uh, MacArthur uh, was completed more than 30 years ago. Uh, so this is an important publishing event. As you read it, I want you to pay attention to two things that I most like about Arthur's writing in this book and others, uh, uh, two uh, rare uh, capacities. The first is this. Uh, in the modern world, we have two kinds of uh, histories. There is popular history, uh, which is written as if the author is writing a screenplay, and I think many of them probably hope that the book will become a screenplay. It is written from a perspective of complete omniscience. Uh, the author knows everything, takes you into the mind of great historical personalities, tells you exactly what they are thinking, with no basis in uh, any uh, fact that we know of, uh, but simply uh, their own uh, imagination. Uh, these books often lapse over into fiction. At the opposite extreme is academic histories, uh, which are uh, dense, crabbed, footnote-laden, uh, and uh, where the author would never venture to offer the least uh, interpretation, uh, just uh, merely reciting the facts. Uh, Arthur Herman seems to have found exactly the right balance. Uh, this book has, uh, is written with great uh, vivacity and narrative thrust. Uh, it uh, conveys the drama of dramatic personalities and uh, astoundingly uh, dramatic uh, events. Uh, and its author never hesitates to interpret events uh, in the moment that they are being related and to render uh, his judgment on uh, complex uh, events and uh, uh, personalities uh, that with uh, strong and weak uh, characteristics. But his interpretations and his judgments are always grounded in facts uh, as we know them through the historical uh, record. Uh, his footnoting is completely unobtrusive, uh, but if you read something and you wonder where he got that or what is his judgment based upon, it is there to be investigated. And often, as in his astoundingly detailed account of uh, military action in the Pacific during World War II, uh, his uh, complete mastery of the material is evident on the page uh, itself. Uh, second, and maybe most important of all. Um, uh, this is a book of uh, meticulous uh, analysis. Uh, it has uh, many uh, nuanced uh, interpretations, uh, and it is uh, unflinching in its criticism uh, of, uh, of Arthur's uh, subject. Uh, and yet, uh, the author 
uh, uh, is never afraid uh, to do what historians often uh, uh, fear to do, which is to look human greatness in the face and call it by its true name. Please give a warm welcome to Arthur Herman. That was marvelous. Thank you. Well, thank you all for coming. Um, this, I like to think that this afternoon in particular that right here is the coolest spot in Washington, not just in terms of temperature, but also culturally speaking. Um, I want to talk to you about this book about, not so much about why I wrote it, but what I came to understand as a result of writing it about Douglas MacArthur, a man who is, I think, with the only exception of FDR, the most consequential public figure, uh, American figure of the 20th century. Um, and as Chris just pointed out to you in his marvelous introduction, um, which I'm hoping is, he's going to save and use uh, many times after I write something that he really can't stand, I could remind him and say, well, this is what you said about me just that low that many years ago is that he is a polarizing figure. He was in his lifetime. In his lifetime, he was either loved or hated. Very few neutral opinions about Douglas MacArthur. Now, I don't expect you at the end of this to come away with a feeling that Douglas, uh, of loving Douglas MacArthur, but maybe if you had a strongly negative view, as many people do, uh, maybe you'll come away with a slightly more, more balanced view, as I did by the time I finished the project. It's been a very exciting project to work on, um, not least because of the amount of documents, the people that I got to meet and, and to talk about with regard to the book. Um, we, my wife and I, Beth, just got back from New York this uh, last week, just as the book dropped. Uh, I had lunch with my editor. We celebrated the release of the book and then went around to bookstores signing copies. And at one of the one of the stops that we made was at a, a, a Barnes and Noble. I won't give you exact location, but it's in on Manhattan. And we went up, um, and there was the book sitting on the you know the, what they call the octagon, right? The main table as you come in, and there it is. In fact, there was some guy just sitting there pawing over the book. I had to like pry it out of his hand so I could sign the thing. Uh, which, and I always, always enjoy that, although I have to say I much prefer if I have to sign books, I much prefer signing them in an event like this, where I can actually talk to people who are buying it, talk to them, get, ask them what they want in terms of in inscriptions. One of my favorite things about book events is to do that. But anyway, so there were the books. We brought one over to the young 20-something who was standing behind the customer service desk. And I said, you know, I'm here to sign my new book. Uh, you know, please round up whatever copies you had. They were supposed to have 30 copies. So she called down, she said, let me call downstairs and see what the other copies are. And she picked up the phone and rang up and said, oh, she said, Douglas MacArthur is here to sign his new book. <laughs> now, there were a couple of things about this that struck me immediately. <laughs> One was, even at my advanced age, I'm still younger than he was at the time in which World War II and then during the Korean War. That's number one. Number two is I am taller than Douglas MacArthur. Did you know that? He was actually not that tall. He was only about five foot ten, five foot eleven. But because of his because of his presence, the presence made people feel that he must be six foot plus in the process. 
The other thing that struck me about this is that if ever there was a need for a book to communicate to Americans who Douglas MacArthur was, this is definitely the time. <laughs> Just so we at least don't get people confused as to which of us is, it is who's standing in front of them in this situation. Anyway, Douglas MacArthur. Um, what did I find out working on this book? What did I describe? It, it's an interesting, first, a strange paradox about MacArthur. Um, that arises, I think, to a degree when we think about his relationship with his father. Here he is. This is Arthur MacArthur as a young lieutenant uh, in the 24th Wisconsin during the Civil War. And I say young lieutenant, I mean young lieutenant. If you look at him, the first time I saw the picture, in fact, I thought it must be some kid dressed up for Halloween in some Union Army uniform, but no. That's Arthur MacArthur as, as adjutant of his regiment at the age of 16, at the age of 16, who then goes on to be severely wounded twice during the war, leads his regiment up Missionary Ridge in a charge that wins him the Medal of Honor, and then by the war's end, finishes as lieutenant colonel and commanding the 24th Wisconsin. He's 19 when he assumes command of the regiment at the end of the war. And at that point, Arthur MacArthur was a Wisconsin hero. In fact, the cry that he gives as he charges up Missionary Ridge on Wisconsin, waving the flags, he carries the flag, becomes the state, the state motto, the state song, the state fight song. Um, he is celebrated across the state. His father, very influential judge um, in, in Milwaukee and then later in Washington, the whole world is open to young Arthur MacArthur at age 19 when the war comes to an end. But he decides, much against his family's wishes, he's going to stay in the U.S. Army. This is his life for him. This is more than just a, a, something that he had to do in order to fight, fight a rebellion. It's a calling for him. And so he goes off to a series of tiny, insignificant army posts for the next 20, almost 30 years in fact, uh, here. Marrying in the meantime, raising a brood of children at the same time, uh, living the life. If you, if you know John Ford Westerns, that's Arthur MacArthur. You know, he's, he's, he's uh, Colonel Brittles, uh, Captain Brittles. Uh, that's his life until the Spanish-American War breaks out. Spanish-American War breaks out. Uh, he gets back in, becomes, gets a commission as a brigadier general, goes to the Philippines, and it's there that, that Arthur MacArthur develops the tactics and strategy by which the Filipino ins, uh, insurgency is defeated. In fact, he is, Arthur MacArthur is, and I've got a later picture for him. There, there's the family in the 1880s. There's Douglas on the left with the golden curls, of course, that goes with that kind of Buster Brown look that was so popular for boys in the 1880s. Uh, his father, looking not quite so young now at that point, as we all do. And then his other brother, Arthur, and then his mother, Mary, Mary Hardy, Pinky, or Pinkney Hardy, Pinky, as she becomes known in the family. Uh, and that's her family nickname. He's the David Petraeus of the Philippine insurrection. He develops the tools by which it becomes possible. When becomes military governor, in fact, of the Philippines after the war and begins the process of reconstructing of the Philippines after the war. In fact, just as a quick footnote ahead, a quick jump ahead, 
People are always amazed at Douglas MacArthur's success when he becomes, uh, takes charge in post-war Japan and rebuilding Japan and organizing and reconstructing an entire society, all that goes into it. People are amazed that he's able to do this. Where does he draw the experience? He draws it from his father's experience in the Philippines. He listened and he was not there, but he listened and heard his father's work, the lessons to be learned from this whole process. And Douglas adopts those and, and adapts them to the, to the Japanese example. In any case, his father's passion for the U.S. Army, his passion for the military life is passed on to, is passed on to young Douglas. And it's one that is going to take him a little too fast there. It's going to take him to West Point. That's him, by the way, up there at the top right. This is the, this is the Harvard foot, this is the West Point football team there. He's up at the top right in the gray cadet uniform with a faraway look in his eyes. People got to recognize that look in young Douglas MacArthur, that faraway look, looking out beyond the horizon. It's part of who he was, part of the way in which he functions with these kinds of things. He has a stellar record at West Point, a record that's unequaled by anyone except perhaps Robert E. Lee. He then goes on to World War I, where he earns seven, count them, seven silver stars for bravery under fire, two distinguished service crosses, and becomes the youngest uh, major general in U.S. history, even younger than his father from that point of view. After that, right after the war, he's appointed as superintendent to West Point, where he's appointed in order to modernize the institution, bring it into the modern world. It's felt that Douglas MacArthur, of all of the possible candidates for that position, is the one who can carry forward that sort of process of modernization, who has the breadth of knowledge, the breadth of experience, and the leadership qualities that it takes to take, turn America's leading military academy and the Army's seedbed of talent and leadership into a modern institution to bring it forward to the modern world. From there, he goes on to a series of military posts until finally he's appointed in 1935 as, uh, I'm sorry, appointed in 1932 as Army Chief of Staff, a position that even his father had not quite attained, the highest possible rank within his chosen profession. And the success doesn't go on from there, it doesn't stop there. He goes on to World War II, where after, um, after disastrous setbacks in the Philippines campaign in 1941-1942, he manages to return, return to the Philippines, leading major campaigns in New Guinea in the Southwest Pacific area, and becomes the first American commander to set foot in Japan following defeat. This is him landing at Atsugi Airport in August of 1945, shortly after the atomic bomb had been dropped, as he organizes the, the surrender ceremony for the USS Missouri. And then, for the next five years, he's going to be sole, uh, sole uh, leader of the transformation of Japan from a broken imperialist militarist society into the modern uh, commercial industrialized democracy it is today. Uh, and, this, and, and, the, and, the, and the Japan that we see today is very much the product of Douglas MacArthur's work and also Douglas MacArthur's vision. But it doesn't stop there. Then the Korean War breaks out. And in the midst of collapse in South Korea, 
Douglas MacArthur organizes first the last, last ditch resistance to stop the communist advance from overrunning the entire Korean Peninsula, and then launches one of what even MacArthur detractors admit is one of the most brilliant campaigns in military history, the surprise landing, amphibious landing at Incheon, which cuts off the North Koreans uh, and leads to the quick, swift collapse of the communist cause as he pushes uh, the, pushes the communists back up across the, the 38th parallel, it takes Pyongyang in the process, and as the, as, as the world hovers on the brink of a unified Korea and also the collapse of the communism's most important and deadliest military advance. It's a hell of a record. <laughs> so you've got to say, then why is his reputation so lousy? Why is it that men like Dwight Eisenhower, who was his chief of staff, who he always thought of as a young shavetail captain and major, MacArthur did, why is it that George Marshall, who likewise you know, was a lieutenant colonel at a time when, when uh, Douglas MacArthur is army chief of staff, why is it Patton, who met who served briefly with MacArthur during World War I when they both came under shell fire and then it wrote to his parents uh, and said, Patton did, and said, Douglas MacArthur is the bravest man I've ever met. I've never seen anybody's coolness under fire like this. Omar Bradley, why is it that these guys all stand out, have multiple admiring biographies written about them, have aircraft carriers named after them and, and army bases, and why is it MacArthur's? What reputation is so lousy? Well, that's what I'm going to tell you why. I'm going to explain that to you. Why it is that despite that stellar record, MacArthur's record remains both ambiguous and, we have to admit, to a certain degree, also slightly blemished. What is it about MacArthur? What is it about his circumstances? What is it about his character? as well as decisions he made that's made him perhaps less appreciated as a great military figure, as I believe he was, in which I believe, I hope this biography will help to resuscitate that process. Well, there's a couple of reasons. One is, is that throughout his life, Douglas MacArthur didn't give a damn what other people thought. This is him, by the way, uh, during the um, uh, Santa Cruz expedition in 1914. And you can already see there is that sort of unconventional look to Douglas as a Captain MacArthur at the time. When you look at him there, there he is. He's even got his, the characteristic, the trademark corncob pipe. It's already popped up in his mouth there. But look at, look at the, the sort, of, sort of thumbing his nose at regulation uniform and regulation dress in the process of it. Douglas MacArthur never gave a damn what other people thought. And he always knew that he was right. This is another characteristic of his, that it was always is going to stand in his way and, and become part of a problem for him. Because he's not only know, does he know he's right, he's going to tell people that, even his superiors. Now, if you're in an institution like the U.S. Army, telling your superiors you know they're wrong and that you're right is probably not the way to get the best possible advancement. And when we think about the, his, his, his career, and his ability to move forward from one position, one, one rank after another, to rise from one level, one distinguished position after another, it's important to realize that the whole time that he's driving forward, he's got the parking brake on, which is called his personality. 
So he didn't give a damn about what anybody thought except one person. And that's mother. There she is, but it's in the 1920s, gazing admiringly at a picture of her son. The, the inner life of Douglas MacArthur is one, for all of the projection of self-confidence, even arrogance, is one, as I discovered, consumed with self-doubt, consumed with a lack of confidence, consumed with uh, the, the, those moments, critical moments of having to reach key decisions in his life in which waves of nausea would sweep over him and almost paralyzed. And in those moments, his mother is the one who steps forward and gives him the strength. She's the pillar and strength of his life, all the way until her death in, 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 1930, in 1935. Uh, it's an extraordinary story, really, of, of a man well into his 40s who needs that kind of emotional support from a strong, uh, I won't say domineering woman, because she was not. That's also, I think, a myth. She's often in biographies presented as being kind of Lady Macbeth figure. She's not at all in many ways. She's strong. She gives excellent advice. She helps her son get through the key important decisions in her life. And after her death, the person who takes his place, her place will be his wife, Jean MacArthur. Um, and one of the privileges I had in writing this biography was to be the first historian to use Jean McCarthy's oral history as part of the book. And the revealing of the kind of inner life that they had together was really quite amazing, quite touching. I talk about it in the book. Um, and the relationship was very deep, very deep. Uh, confidant, counselor, as well as wife and mother for, for MacArthur. But that inner life is one that is in the hands of the women in his life. For the males, they get Douglas MacArthur, the alpha male, the dominant, the arrogant, the self-assured, the outspoken. It's one that includes, it's a company of those who are going to be on the receiving end of that that comes to include presidents. First Roosevelt, here he is, MacArthur on the left, Roosevelt in the middle, and Admiral Nimitz on the right. When they had their summit meeting during World War II in Hawaii uh, in 1943, when the decision is made about where is the war in the Pacific going to go? Are we going to go through the Central Pacific, or are we going to pursue a strategy uh, through the Southwest Pacific? I talk about all the details in the book. So all of it is there for how this went. But in the course of those discussions, MacArthur berated Roosevelt and explained to him, this is what you have to do. This is the strategy you have to take. And at the end of it, Roosevelt met with his doctor, and he said, no one has ever spoken to me like that in my life. <laughs> he took two sleeping pills, went to sleep the bed. And of course, it will also come to include Truman. It will also come to include Truman in the Truman circle. And that will be, in the end, Truman will be his nemesis. And the one who, in terms of dealing with the self-assured, confident, outspoken, MacArthur will finally say, enough's enough. You have to go. And we'll have taken out from command in Korea. So that's one reason. Personality. Never Never, uh, should we say, never a source of friction. He's not that. He can be quite charming. But that self-assurance, that, that, that confidence bordering on arrogance is one that's going to rub people the wrong way and it's going to hurt his reputation, particularly with, with presidents. What also hurts his reputation is being a conservative, especially with two liberal presidents, Roosevelt and Truman, and their entourages. Um, it's going to hurt his opinion with, for example, the press, too, the media. 
um, and with liberal opinion. When, for example, he takes he take he supervises the clearing of the Bonus Army March um, from in 1932 out of Washington. Again, all the details in the book. I don't want to summarize it here, but the myth of Douglas MacArthur as the as the man on the white horse. The, the, the would-be American dictator, the man who burned out the homeless marchers and burned down their camp and drove them out. It's not true at all. They set fire to their own camp in the process of, of, of leaving Washington here. All of those kinds of myths about Douglas MacArthur, the ones that will lead Franklin Roosevelt to refer to him as the most dangerous man in America, all of those things spring from the fact that MacArthur is unabashedly conservative, unabashedly Republican, unabashedly anti-communist. That's definitely going to hurt his reputation with historians later on after the Korean War, um, as they do their best to, to, to make, it, make, it, make MacArthur into a caricature figure, a kind of, a kind of General Jack Ripper from uh, Dr. Strangelove as a man out of control, a general out of control, a man obsessed with communism, etc., etc. Now, all of those are factors that weigh in with MacArthur's reputation. There's no doubt about that. Uh, we'll call them extrinsic factors, but they're also intrinsic ones. And by intrinsic, I mean decisions that MacArthur himself makes that are going to hurt his reputation. MacArthur has a tendency, as, as we come to realize lots of generals do, to make bad decisions in the field, bad strategic decisions. Um, he makes them in World War II. He makes them in Korea. It happens with military figures. All of the, even the best, Alexander, Napoleon, Robert E. Lee, think of Pickett's Charge. Ulysses S. Grant, think of Cold Harbor. MacArthur makes his equivalents of the Pickett's Charge decisions and, and Cold Harbor. One takes place in the Philippines when under the Japanese, sudden Japanese invasion, he makes a series of bad decisions. Blunders almost. Again, I summarize them in the book. You can follow the, follow the overall story of how MacArthur basically, I won't say blew it, but made decisions that made repelling and stopping the Japanese invasion much more difficult. And it led to him, there he is with his chief of staff, uh, uh, Richard Sutherland, down in the tunnels in the fortress at Corregidor after the American retreat down the ba Bataan Peninsula to, uh, as the Japanese overwhelmed the Philippines and took over the city of Manila. Now it's from Corregidor that MacArthur then faced certain death. That was his plan. He had lost the war. He had lost the campaign. He would now take the last stand with his troops in the final, final days. But it doesn't happen. By the way, this is another one of the myths about MacArthur is that he escapes from Corregidor. You know, Case by P. Tebow, you know, slipping away in the middle of the night. It's not true. He intended to die there. He was ordered to leave by Roosevelt. Roosevelt and the Joint Chiefs of Staff figured we cannot afford to have a man of his stature, of his I mean, former U.S. Army Chief of Staff, is now going to be captured or killed by the Japanese. U.S. morale in this war at the early stages of the war is going to plummet to the bottom. This is just months after Pearl Harbor, after all, when everything looked really bleak for Americans. They order him to leave, and so he does. And after a nightmarish 560-mile trip through Japanese-occupied waters, twice during, that, during their escape from Corregidor, 
with uh, with uh, with uh, with four PT boats. Twice they're almost captured by the Japanese, only by a miracle that they manage to avoid Japanese capture. He comes to he arrives in 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 Australia to overwhelming acclaim and begins the process of bringing America on the road back from going from a war from a, a defeated country humiliated by the experiences both at Pearl Harbor and defeat in the Philippines into the country that will ultimately prevail in the war against Japan. And as he supervises the surrender on the USS Missouri in September 1945, he has in place all of the symbols of that, of that vindication of the war. Because directly behind him, as he signs the, the, the surrender documents, stands Jim Wainwright, the, 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 the commander of the, army, of the U.S. Army forces that MacArthur was forced to abandon at Bataan in 1942, as well as General Percival, the British general who was forced to surrender uh, and to the Japanese in Singapore uh, a month earlier. Same process takes place in Korea. After the amazing success, amazing stroke, of genius at Incheon, the advance up the 38th parallel, the entire war turns around when the Chinese intervene in, in November and December of, 19, of 1950. On the heels of MacArthur's triumph and success comes a disastrous retreat back down the Korean Peninsula with painful incidents and episodes like, for example, the Marines at Chosin Reservoir as you see them here, having to fight their way through the snows and through the, the ice. Again, this tends to be represent, misrepresented, the process that takes place in the war. And for years afterwards, for years and decades afterwards, the Chinese intervention was seen as a, as a result of MacArthur's overbearing strategy of pushing too close to the Yalu River, the border that separated North Korea from, uh, from China here. Um, and is seen as being a rash act that then forced the Chinese to intervene out of fear the United States was going to attack and destroy them. Not true. What I discovered, what I discovered working on this book, is, is that, and we know this from Chinese archives now, is, is that Mao Zedong, the, the new dictator of China, had prepared for war against the United States the minute the first U.S. GI landed in South Korea. He was already assembling his forces for a massive attack against the Americans in Korea. He was simply waiting for the moment when the Americans would advance far enough up the, North, up the Korean peninsula that he would be able to envelop and close the trap with six Chinese armies. What's amazing about, MacArthur's, about MacArthur as a military strategist is he managed, again, again like as, as with the Bataan campaign, he managed to prevent a complete rout and disaster and managed to turn it around and prevent the complete disaster that, that, that Mao had prepared for him, the Chinese had prepared for him in it. And in fact, he reverses the course of the war. Together with Matthew Ridgway, who he now places in command of the, uh, of the Eighth Army that's doing the main fighting for UN forces in Korea, he begins the march back up, back up the Korean Peninsula, pushing on towards the 38th parallel when Truman relieves him, and takes him out of command. An act which seemed to the American public, and also to Douglas MacArthur, is beyond comprehension. We're winning this thing. Why are you taking me out of the war? 
Well, explain all the different issues that weighed the pros and cons in that discussion here. But what we can say, what we can say is that if MacArthur's strategy had been able to carry forward, if he had been able to push back across the 38th parallel and take Pyongyang again, break the Chinese forces operating in Korea as he planned to do, as his strategy demanded to be done. No, no North Korea today. No nuclear threat for North Korea today. A unified Korea, all within the realm of possibility from MacArthur and his views on these subjects. Well, his removal from command, he comes back to the United States a national hero. Parades throughout major American cities, hundreds of thousands of people turning out to greet him. The man who incomprehensibly, American hero, but incomprehensibly been removed by Truman and his advisors when America was at the brink of reversing the war and brink of victory, or so it seemed the American public. He gives an electrifying speech at, to a joint session of Congress in April 1951. Probably a lot of you have seen excerpts from it, and I'm sure most of you know the famous closing words of old soldiers never die, they only fade away, that became standing, not a, not a, not a dry eye in the house, standing ovations that follow through it. In all, these, in all these moments. And then he goes into retirement. Goes into retirement uh, to a private apartment in the Waldorf Astoria Towers in New York until his death in 1964. That's MacArthur. So MacArthur is an historical figure. An historical figure who turns defeat into victory, who turns adversity into triumph. I think you can make that claim. I think he does a pretty good job of it, who overcomes personal disappointments one after another in the process, a man who overcomes his self-doubts and his own deep anxieties about whether his actions are right or wrong, but who has able to carry forward and bring it forward. It's an amazing story. But the question that I think that you really have, we really need to ask is, what about Douglas MacArthur today? What do we learn from a figure like this, and what do we see in him and in his life that it carries relevance today? Well, I think there's a lot of stuff, a lot of things. But two I'm going to center on here to close. The first one is the way in which MacArthur saw that America's future lay in Asia, that Asia would be the great cockpit of world history in the, 20th, in the 21st century, and that America needed to be engaged and needed to be uh, a part of the building of a future democratic Asia not just for the sake of Asia itself to avoid the kinds of tyrannies and despotisms that would arise from Asia once the European colonial yoke had been lifted after World War II, but for America's own sake. That, as he said in his speech to the joint session of Congress, that, that, that the Asia is the first line of defense for America, our exposed western flank on the Pacific. And we learned there's a lesson to be learned from Pearl Harbor that engagement in Asia, engagement in building allies, particularly Japan, would be the way in which the United States would not only help to build peace and stability in Asia, but would be a means of securing our own national security and defense. It's a very important point, very important part of MacArthur's whole life, and one which I think bears a lot of relevance today. Here's the second point I'm going to mention. And that is, is that MacArthur's most famous motto, after I shall return, 
was coined during the Korean War when he wrote to a Republican congressman in the midst of the Korean conflict and said, there is no substitute for victory. Now, I think that's a very, very powerful message. There is no substitute for victory. It, he was thinking primarily of Korea. Don't accept a stalemate in Korea. It can only be bad news for everyone who is involved. Strive for victory. There is no substitute for victory. This is what MacArthur was trying to achieve in Korea. This is what he saw. By the way, Marines in action in street fighting in Seoul during the Korean War. This is what he tried to give to the American soldiers who were fighting under him, and the Marines. We're, I'm going to give you victory. This, is, this pain and suffering you've gone through, that the end will come, the defeat of the enemy, destruction of their ability to, to wage war and fight. It's what he had seen as a young lieutenant colonel and brigadier general during World War I. There, there was a push for victory. There, there was a push to defeat the enemy, break their will to fight, break their will to fight. And it didn't happen in World War I. Germany was allowed to slip away with an armistice. It was allowed to shut down the war. The European Americans wanted to go. You know, Pershing said, let's go to Berlin, finish this thing. It's the European powers who said, no, I don't think so. We've, we've paid enough of a price over the last four years in this conflict. The Germans want to sign an armistice, stop the fighting. Whew, I think we're done here. Well, guess what? Just laid the seeds for the next conflict after that. And that was MacArthur's whole point. That was the lesson he was trying to teach Americans. And it's the lesson which I think we can say American policymakers have ignored time and time again. Not just in Korea. It's the lesson they ignored in Vietnam. And don't forget that after his retirement, after this is him during the Inchon landing, talking to his chief of staff, Sutherland, don't forget that during that after his retirement, when John F. Kennedy comes to visit him at the Waldorf Astoria Towers, and they have a long discussion about Asia, and MacArthur's first advice to Kennedy, do not get mixed up in what Ike has been involving us in Indochina. Don't do it. Anyone who gets, gets involved in a land war in Asia ought to have their head examined. Famous line, right? He knew. He had fought land wars in Asia. But above all, he knew what it was to fight land wars in Asia or land wars in the Middle East if you don't have a plan for victory. Not a plan, not an exit strategy, a winning strategy. It's good advice. It's good advice now. It was good advice then. And it's one which I think for Douglas MacArthur, his ongoing relevance, if there's one lesson that emerges from him, it's the importance for an American foreign policy and defense policy to think and dwell upon that basic idea. You don't start a war unless you intend to win it. MacArthur's motto for his, his motto for all of his life, and the one which I think still rings down true and rings true in policy in the future today. I'm done. And I wanted to be sure to clear time to answer questions, which I'm happy to do. So please, um, should we work our way like this clockwise, starting here? Thank you very much. That was uh, quite informative. My name is Cornelia Weiss. Um, I was actually rereading a section of uh, MacArthur's uh, memoirs today, and I looked at the section on the occupation and how he talks about 
um, and, and I'll paraphrase it, but his, his proudest accomplishment in Japan was uh, uh, the enfranchisement of women. And he talks about all the good that came out of that. Um, and then he also talked about the um, negative comments that he received from the so-called experts as to that it went against the culture of the Japanese to empower women. And I'd like for you to address uh, if you came across during your research um, any of those uh, uh, commentaries from the so-called experts, and if that bears any relevance to today. Thank you. <laughs> it does have a, thank you. It does have a rather interesting contemporary ring, doesn't it? When we think about the, the, the we're tiptoeing around cultural norms uh, of certain uh, countries, certain cultures, uh, for fear that if we stand up and uphold our own values in a forthright manner, that somehow we're going to be, be offensive or somehow we're going to offend, instead of saying, you've got to stand up for the values you hold. That's what MacArthur did. And he was very much convinced that one of the changes that were going to have to come in Japan was going to be the enfranchisement of women, not just from the point of view of equality of sexes, although that was also very much in his mind, and given the role that strong women had played in his life, you can understand how he'd understand the importance of women here in society and their role, but also because he saw it as a powerful deterrent. This is one of the reasons why he support, why one of the lessons he had learned from the enfranchisement of women in Imperial Germany after the war. That this was, as he told a reporter during the American occupation in Germany, he said, have you noticed what's happened now? The women are overwhelmingly anti-war. They're not going to let their men folk go to war here as long as they've got the vote. Now, in the long term, he turned out to be wrong in the case of Germany. But in the case of Japan, in a country like that, dominated by male values, the values of Bushido, to have women weighing in on matters of life and death and policies that could lead to life and death, he felt very strongly was one that could prevent the rise of a Japan like the one which had disrupted Asia and almost and almost overrun Asia uh, in the 1930s and during World War II. We got, then we got two, three, four, three there. Go ahead. Uh, <clears throat> Edward Eagles. Uh, first, uh, we owe you a serious debt of thanks for bringing this new biography out and revisiting him. You made, an, I'll say, an astonishing statement at, your very, at the very outset that Douglas MacArthur is perhaps the second most consequential American figure of the 20th century. Could you elaborate? Well, I guess simply in the sense that he was a, man, he was a person who... Um, if nothing else, just in terms of the breadth of his life and the eminence that he rose to in the course of that from a very young age, you can say he weighs in in a, more, in a very powerful way as a, uh, uh, as a military leader, let's say. Take, just take that point of view. Here's a man who's a commander in not one, not two, but three world wars. First World War, Second World War, and Korea as part of the Cold War. No one has a record that equals that. It was one of the reasons why he becomes, in World War II breaks out, why he becomes Supreme Commander of the Southwest Pacific Area. There's nobody, nobody in the U.S. Army who has a record comparable with that. No one who had seen combat in World War I, who was at, at the level of, of three-star general, which he was, uh, at the outbreak of the war. 
But also I think consequential too is a political figure. And by that I mean political, not in the sense of rising to become president, which was a goal he always had in the back of his mind, especially after the adulation that fell on his head returning back from, from Korea. You know, these parades, hundreds of thousands, it's gonna turn anybody's head. And he had to have thought that that joint, that that speech addressed to the joint session of Congress was gonna be the springboard into the, into the Oval Office. There was no doubt about that in his mind. And when his political campaign launches in 1952, I think he felt very confident that given the adulation, given the support he had across the nation just months before, that this would be one that would be consolidate his chances for winning a nomination. Well, it doesn't happen. By the time the convention comes in Chicago, the number of committed delegates he has on his site number exactly 10. But that campaign and those, that speech and that, that, that whole, uh, uh, should I say, movement that he set in motion coming back from Korea transformed both political parties. First of all, it put the, def put the, the Democrat Party on def defense. What have you done? How have you taken out an American leader, a hero, just as he seems to be at the point of victory? What, what role have you played in promoting and, and appeasing communism in Asia, particularly China and the, and, the, and the loss of China? MacArthur crystallized that as a way of thinking about what was happening in, 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 uh, uh, in, in, in the role the Democrats had played in that, but also reviving the Republican Party too, of making them once again a party that can think about majorities after being shut out of the White House for that period of time. Then I'm going to mention one other aspect, consequential, and that is as a public figure, as an icon, a physical icon. MacArthur knew exactly what he was doing with all of the trademark emblem, the corncob pipe, right? The corncob pipe and so on. He hated smoking the corncob pipe. He much prefers cigars and cigarettes, and that's what he really smoked in private. But he knew the corncob pipe was a symbol, it was a trademark of who he was. And when he gets off the beach, you know, gets onto the beach, I should say, at, at Leyte or at Los Negros, and, 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 and walks along under sniper fire, seeing that, that corncob pipe tells the soldiers, hey, MacArthur's here, it can't be that dangerous, it can't be that perilous if he's gonna be here supporting us and, and standing with us. Likewise, the hat. Likewise, the hat with the you know, sort of crumpled look, which he perfected during World War I, by the way, in which Billy Mitchell copied when he saw his hat with the iron grommet pulled out. Mitchell said, God, I want a hat like that, it looks really cool. And it did, and it becomes the hat that we think about for you know, the US Air Force all through World War II. It's MacArthur's look. That's MacArthur's look that he takes on. The sunglasses, the aviator jacket, all of these things, icons of, of symbols of leadership, which then become passed on as a way of thinking about of, of, of how to shape, how trademark images shape and, can, and sort of push uh, American culture, not just American politics or military, but American culture. MacArthur's right at the center of all that kind of thing. I think it's a defensible statement, and I'll stand up. I'll stick a, take my stand with it. In the back there, and then around. Sure.
Uh, you mean the, the commander in chief? Yeah. Well, I, I think that that's agreed, and I, I, I think MacArthur agreed. I think, in fact, one of the things that, that Truman would do and the Truman supporters would do after MacArthur's firing was to suggest that there was a constitutional crisis in some way, that MacArthur was challenging civilian leadership. It's not true. It's not true at all. He had made public statements which were seen as critical of Truman and Truman's policy, but he had carried that, that policy out without fail. He never once said, I'm going to dis I'm disobeying this order. I never, never once said, I'm challenging civilian authority or even the president's authority. He just felt that the strategy they were using was wrong, but he was willing to carry it forward with it. I have a very different theory about why Truman finally decided to fire MacArthur. And that was that MacArthur up through the advance up to the Yalu, the one that becomes the sort of symbol of his of his you know, being out of control as, as, as commander-in-chief, that we have to remember that all the way through it, he was following precisely the strategy that had been laid out for him by the, by the Joint Chiefs. At no step, at no stage in all of MacArthur's strategy uh, and all of his actions in Korea, at no, at no stage did he take an action that was not sanctioned and approved for by his superiors, including Truman. I think they got rid of MacArthur for two reasons. One was, you can't, you can't have a commander-in-chief, even you can't have a supreme commander, even if he's following your orders, talking behind your back, which he was doing to reporters. That can't be done. But they never told him that. They never sat down and said, you can't do this. You never, they were never straightforward about that. There was a moment at Wake Island when they meet at Wake Island. If Truman had wanted to, he could it was a, I think it's one of the great tragedies of history, actually. Is that, that neither man could come to grips with the real issues that were involved here. MacArthur had contempt for Truman, who he saw as you know, a, a pale reflection of, of Franklin Roosevelt, for whom he really respected. His judgment on Truman was wrong, but it was one that clouded his judgment, his ability to deal with him. The same was true for Truman as well. He felt really kind of threatened by MacArthur. He couldn't deal with him in this way. If he had been forthright and said, look, this has got to stop, this is our policy. If you can't follow it without question, without raising these kinds of issues, then we have to find somebody else. And I think at that point, MacArthur would have made a decision, either resign or simply go forward and carry on like the good soldier he is. I think that, in other words, what I'm suggesting to you, I see your point, and it's one that's been going on, debate, and happen. But from my point of view, I think that the issue of what, that MacArthur was sort of stretching the envelope in terms of you know, civilian control of the military, I think, is way overblown. And I think it was one of the ways in which the, the, the firing was rationalized and justified in the midst of an immense public outcry and backlash against the decision. That it had to be, they had to put it in ways to say this is of huge significance, not just because this, this guy constantly reminds us of a policy that we said go ahead and carry it forward, and now we need to start with a clean slate. There? And then we'll, I'm gonna, we'll, we'll switch over to the other side of the room next. And then we'll come back. We'll come back. Albert Nabula from AAAS. Uh, you compare Germany in 1940s to the Koreas. So we saw an armistice, World War One. Uh, yeah, the World War One. Yeah, World War One, and then we have World War Two after that. We still don't have a peace agreement in the Koreas. Sure so don't. What's What's the future for Korea? What's the likelihood of an exacerbation of conflict, either regional or on a whole international scale? Well, now you're asking me to put on my other hat, the policy hat uh, that I wear at Hudson, in addition to the historical hat. 
here too. I think it's a very, very complicated uh, situation, obviously a very complicated situation. Um, my own view, ooh, just banged my, my microphone, sorry. My own view is that um, the uh, answer to the solution to the problems in Pyongyang goes through Beijing. That the real solution to the Korean problem lies in convincing China that they've got to rein this guy in. And this regime has to be, you know, has to be transformed in one way or another. And if, and if, and if, and if Kim isn't going to be the head of it, then find somebody else. Find a general who can take over from that point of view so he's not a menace to his neighbors. China has not been forced to take the, their, their support for North Korea seriously, I think. And in my opinion, that's the way in which you bring this, bring this, into, bring this under control before it's too late, because at some point, somebody's finger is going to slip and hit that button, and I don't even want to think about what takes place from that point of view here. Kim plays a very, you know, the, that whole family has played a very delicate game here of kind of nuclear blackmail with their neighbors and so on. But it's going to reach a point, as MacArthur himself said, you know, if you yield to blackmail, you yield to this, and eventually you will reach a point where you're going to have to use violence because you haven't stood up, you haven't insisted. But the person to stand up to is not Kim Jong-un, it's President Xi in, in, in Beijing. He's the one you need to stand up with, need to deal with. Now I'm going to take a couple questions on this side, and we'll circle back. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, Robert Bible. from 1936 to 1941 to adequately train the uh, Philippine Army, which I think was about 100,000 in 1941, uh, and then to not implement Rainbow Five or any other kind of you know, reasonable defense of the Philippines. Well, I talk about this in more detail in the book, which you will appreciate, because obviously you know, you, you know the issues that are involved from this. But let me summarize it. Let me summarize it this way. Number one is that the the is that the commitment to tra training and equipping a Philippine army, the lack of commitment was not from MacArthur, it was from the Philippine government, and, all, and as well as the United States government. Those two governments together basically starved MacArthur of the funds and support he needed in order to build and train an adequate Philippine army. The U.S., because basically they'd given up, they'd written off the Philippines. In <laughs> an event of a war, the Japanese are going to overrun it. We haven't... Why invest? We already have slender resources now. Why are we investing more in a losing cause? That's number one. Number two is the Philippine government became more and more convinced that they would rather spend that money that had been originally set aside to support MacArthur's effort to build the Philippine army on a variety of social welfare projects and other things. His budget is constantly shrinking over time as a result of that. But it's a huge problem. I mean, MacArthur's confidence that he could do this, he could turn the Filipinos into the Swiss of Asia, you know, a self-defense force which can be mobilized, you know, citizen soldier can be mobilized at a moment's notice to defeat an enemy uh, invader and so on, was way overstated, way, way, it was way over-exaggerated from the situation it was in. And people like Eisenhower's chief of staff were warning. He said, this is not working. This is not happening. Of course, it'll work. The Filipinos will, ra will rally. They will stand with us in the event of war. We can make this thing work. And it didn't work. As for the Rainbow Five and for his strategy in Philippines, there's one important thing we have to keep in mind about MacArthur's predicament in dealing with defending the Philippine Islands from, from Japanese, impending Japanese invasion. And that was is that he and everybody else were completely convinced 
that air power was going to be the solution to dealing with the Japanese invasion. This is one of the reasons why he was convinced that he could basically defend the Philippines from the beaches. This is his key decision that he makes. Move the troops forward to, for a forward defense for Japanese landing. And the reason was is because the B-17s would take care of any Japanese invading force. Everybody believed that. Everybody assumed that that was going to happen. They way overestimated the, the power and significance of the B-17 as, uh, as, as an instrument for, for, operational, for operational defense of that kind. And then, of course, half his B-17 forces wiped out on the ground on December 8, 1941, when Brereton, for some reason, first takes them up into the air and then brings them all down to refuel and rearm, and the Japanese catch them, that Brereton being the head of his, being head of his air force in the process. Yeah, as I said, MacArthur made some bad decisions, but they were bad decisions that were based upon, in the case of, the, of his reversal on Rainbow Five, was based upon what seemed to be a very sensible approach, which was the B-17s will handle it. They'll deal with the Japanese, and they'll be the force equalizers. Turned out to be completely and totally misplaced. Hi, uh, Matteo Garofalo. So we've seen in instances like Iraq and Afghanistan that the U.S. is capable of conquering a nation, but we no longer seem capable of restructuring and rebuilding a nation, at least not anywhere near the success of something like Japan. So what do you think were the key steps that really allowed us to do such a good job in that instance? That's a very good question. And I talk about it at length in the book on the chapter on Japan. And there's two things that MacArthur did. Lessons, by the way, which he learned, not just from his father's, but his own experience in Germany after the occupation. And he explained this very clearly. He said, first of all, you have to have, you have to have, a, a, you have to have a defeated enemy. The enemy has to feel like we really lost. You know, what we thought we were going to be, you know, top dogs, run Asia, right? And so on. We've been humiliated, defeated, crushed in the process. Those values have gotten us nowhere. What do we do next? Key to victory is not just defeating an enemy's military forces. It also is, and even more important, is breaking their will to fight. Japan's will to fight was broken by 1945. There was no doubt about that. Don't think we've found that. We've not pushed success in that kind of way at places like Iraq, Afghanistan, <laughs> let alone Vietnam or Korea. That's number one. Number two. Is, is that MacArthur said from the beginning, in order to have a successful reconstruction of Japan, we need to have a Japanese government in control all the way through. There has to be a sense that these are decisions being made by the Japanese themselves, not being imposed from above. This is one of the reasons why he was insistent that the emperor not be placed on trial. As all the other allies, the Russians and the British, and even a lot of Americans were insisting, put the emperor on trial for war crimes. He said, no, we're not going to do that. We need the emperor as the symbol of sovereign authority in Japan around whom we can then build a system of reforms, including, of course, reform of the government itself. And this is the other thing we keep in mind about this. Japanese government, despite all the destruction, despite the, the unconditional surrender, the Japanese government remained in power all the way through. You know, there's a Japanese prime minister, there's a Japanese cabinet for him to deal with the minute he sets foot in Japan. You see, there's a sense of continuity, there's a sense of continuity of institutions from which you build and carry forward to. And that, too, was one of the lessons that we missed out on, we missed out on in certain, kind, in certain recent conflicts, 
here too. You break the enemy's will to fight, but then you also leave them a sense of respect, a sense of our own people are in charge, and we're taking this new path together. That was MacArthur's lesson, and that's the one that I think was the key for, for what happens in Japan. Forget about funds, forget about money, forget about occupation forces. That was the key for Japan. Now I'm going to come back over here again. You had a question there. Lady in orange. Mindy Cutler, I work on Japan. Um, you've discussed several facets of MacArthur, but what about MacArthur the father? It's my understanding that his son loathed him, his son has changed his name, and his son is gay. Was. Was. Well, how do you be was? Is he dead? Yeah, he's dead. Okay. Yeah, Arthur MacArthur died a number of years. I can't give you the exact date here. It was a painful adjustment for Douglas. I don't think he loathed his father. He certainly didn't loathe his mother. Uh, it was a source of conflict, but it was also one in which Douglas came to deal with it, because Gene could. See, that was the key for him. What Jean could deal with, Douglas would deal with. What she follow, she lead, her lead is the lead that he takes in these kinds of relationships of all kinds, whether it's with their son, whether it's other members of the family in the process here. His relationship with women is so fascinating. It's absolutely gripping. And in fact, I have to tell you, this morning I learned something I didn't know before. As you read, when you read the book, you'll see there's a section where I talk about his marriage to his first wife. Louise, Louise Brooks, wealthy, jazz-age flapper, just a real picture of glamour, right? And it's a whirlwind romance. They get married, and he's courting her while he's superintendent at West Point. <clears throat> and at a certain point, uh, you know, he uh, proposes marriage, and she goes to say goodbye to her other paramour, who just happens to be General Pershing. She was Pershing's mistress before she teamed up with MacArthur. Now, Pershing and MacArthur, that relationship's very complicated, very difficult one. And having Louise Brooks in the middle, if you'll pardon the expression, didn't exactly sort of help smooth things out here. But anyway, so Pershing says, he said, oh, you're going to marry Douglas, are you? Yeah, that's good. He said, do you know that he was engaged to be married before? She's aghast. And she said, he didn't tell you about that? He said, you should, you should ask him. Well, I found the letters that he wrote in response to her, like, you were engaged to be married before? And he tells the story, and it's about the girl he met on the boat while he was traveling to the Philippines through the canal zone, who he met, her name is Ramona. And there was a, I mean, it's a very complicated story. You can read about it in the book and so on. I mean, they weren't, she thought they were engaged and he thought they weren't, and they met back in Washington when she was there, and there were tearful scenes, and she threw stuff at him and all. It's very painful. And he tells all this in this letter to Louise to explain the situation. I wasn't really married, don't worry. I am faithful only to you, etc. Anyway, so she's Ramona, and historians are always like, Ramona, who's, uh, who's Ramona? We don't know who Ramona is. Well, I got a tweet today, a guy who knows who she was. It was his great aunt. Her name was Ramona Lefebvre, and she, lived in, she, she grew up in the American colony in the Canal Zone, as a matter of fact. She was a rather prominent lady there, as, in, in fact, later on in life. Uh, but she's the Ramona that comes out of this, you know, out of nowhere, you know. Social media strikes again in the process. Um, one, more, one more question. I got, I got a, I'm so sorry, but, you know, if you, for book signing, I can answer any kind of questions that are left. I'm going to take one more, and it's going to go right there.
Uh, first of all, a great insight. Uh, you've talked at length about uh, MacArthur's firing and the reasons why he was fired. What MacArthur, I'm going to bring sorry, in, MacArthur's firing? And he, yeah, yeah, the reasons why he was fired. What I'm going to bring in is another general who, uh, six years ago, 2010, standing with Crystal. Uh, the reason why he was fired by Obama, both in equal stature in terms of the war that they were commanding. Uh, what are the reasons behind the president's thinking as to why they have to fire these generals? Was that the right thing in both cases, or why? Well, in the McChrystal case, um, that was a dumb interview, certainly. for He should have known better than talking to Rolling Stone magazine. Are you out of your mind? Let alone his staff. That's bad advice all the way around. I don't know. You raised the question about should MacArthur have been fired in the end? Did Truman do the right thing? I guess in the end, it was inevitable he had to do it. But I think it was a tragic decision. I don't think it was a, I don't think it was, you know, MacArthur deserved it. It should have happened. It could have been disaster if he didn't do it. In the end, I think it was no other, there was no other course open to Truman, I feel. Except to confront him and sort of say, look, if we're going to be on the same team, you have to stop talking to Chris and, and, and doing this sort of, and, and, talk, and backbiting here in the process here, regardless of what you're doing in terms of the overall strategy. So, you know, it's the president's prerogative, right? He is commander in chief. And MacArthur understood that. He knew that. But MacArthur never forgave him for the way he found out about it. That's the problem. And that is, is that... Um, he was at lunch in Tokyo, and his wife got up, the phone rang, his wife called, answered the phone, Jean answered the phone, and it was one of their, uh, one of their staff people who said, hey, I just heard on the phone, on the radio, that General MacArthur's been fired. That's the first inkling he had of it. Not good. Not good. Later on, Dean Acheson and Truman said, oh, it was a mix-up, we meant to get the message to him, and so on, but there was not... There were not, this, 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 this was a humiliation that he never forgave Truman for um, and that uh, really poisoned the relationship between, not that it wasn't poisoned before that. Hey, President's Commander-in-Chief, but be careful, be, be, be careful before you make that choice that you're making the right choice. In McChrystal's case, I would say, could have, could have played that differently. In MacArthur's place, I'm not going to say. So I'm going to leave you all in the dark on that one, too. Arthur, wonderful. thank you, and congratulations. Thank you, wonderful audience. Thank you very much.